Scripture lesson for this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. Listen now for God's word to you. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with the other disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand on his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet come to believe. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So a couple weeks ago, I was listening to a pastor that I follow on TikTok. A reminder that you hired a millennial pastor. Um, Listen to a pastor I follow on TikTok, and she was talking about how much she does not like absolutes and binaries. Um, so uh, is uh, the Bible a human book or is it a, a divine book? She says, well, it's both. Is Jesus' resurrection, is it all about his literal rising from the dead or is it the, about the metaphor of our own spiritual rebirth? Both, she says. Are we supposed to read the Bible literally or are we supposed to read it figuratively? Yes, it's both. I think when Jesus says something like we are to love those, love others as he has loved us, maybe we might want to take that a little literally. But was the earth created in six literal days? Probably not. And her TikTok really struck a chord with me that um, our lives are not binary. They're not lived on two polar opposites, but they're lived sort of in this spectrum. So when it comes to the, the question of whether we are sinners or saints, the truth is we live somewhere along the spectrum. Sometimes we're doing the right thing and other times we're not doing the right thing. There's a a Lutheran pastor who's way cooler than I am named Nadia Bowles-Weber. And uh, she talks about how she understands there's propensity within herself to do really good things, but also this propensity to get things really, really wrong. Um, she is both sinner and saint, the strange mixture of both. We all, uh, we all are. Or in those old debates of a century ago that seem to still be around about whether is it faith and, and religion or is it science and reason, we can understand that both have their place, that it's not a binary, that our lives are lived with the sort of shades of gray. These, uh, we're living our lives along this spectrum. Uh, binary thinking, I think, short circuits complex issues. It makes things easier for us when they really we should allow that complexity to exist, to stay there. We, we understand the relationship, the need for faith and for science in our lives. We understand that we are both sinner and saint. We understand to read the Bible sometimes literally and sometimes figuratively. Life is not a binary. It's not about living in, on one pole or the other. And I think that this is an especially important thing for us to keep in mind as we approach this story here this morning. Uh, that since Easter Sunday, we have kind of narratively been stuck on Easter Sunday for the last few weeks. We were there on Easter Sunday. We've been there the last couple of weeks after that. Um, last week, we heard the story of Jesus showing up for his disciples as they are behind the locked doors of the house somewhere in Jerusalem. 
that they have locked themselves away because they are afraid of the authorities, afraid of what might happen to them. And while the doors were still locked, Jesus shows up. He appears there in front of them and helps them to overcome that, that world that might make them afraid. All of that happened on Easter evening. And now here we are, finally away from Easter. We are a week later. And even though Jesus shows up for his disciples behind the locked doors of the house, there was one disciple who was missing. Thomas was not there. And so when Jesus shows back up, the other disciples give that Easter proclamation, the same one that Mary gave to them. We have seen the Lord. And Thomas doesn't believe them. He thinks it's some sort of sick joke. He says, unless I see the marks in his hands and touch the wound in his side, I will not believe it. And so from this story, Thomas has been nicknamed throughout 2,000 years of church history as Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas because he hears the proclamation of Easter and he does not believe it that he's been described as representative of all the cynics down through the ages, as somebody who is bound to empiricism and rationalism and all of those sorts of things. But to me, it's not that simple. A false binary is created here between the disciples who are uh, depicted and understood to have faith and Thomas, on the other hand, who's depicted to have doubt. But if we read the story, we can see there's maybe a little bit more complexity to this. That the disciples, despite having received that vision from Jesus, having Jesus breathe the Holy Spirit on them last week, which is uh, really John's Pentecost moment, as the Father sent me, so I send you, this calling the disciples to leave the house and to go back into the world. Where are they this morning, a week later? still in the house with the door shut. You know, Thomas may say, I can't believe in the resurrection until I see some proof of it, but at least he's been out of the house at this point. The disciples are seemingly, perhaps, still afraid. And so you get this question then of, is it about faith and doubt? I don't think so. There's a spectrum here. The disciples and Thomas are both somewhere along that spectrum of faith and doubt. The disciples proclaiming with their lips the resurrection of Jesus, yet hiding in fear, and Thomas who has left the house. But the nagging question for me, and maybe for many of you, is where was Thomas when Jesus showed up for the other disciples? Why didn't Jesus check their schedules? Where was Thomas? And of course, we could wager all kinds of guesses. It's all conjecture. We have to wonder where Thomas was. Um, I think sometimes maybe Thomas was out getting the food for the rest of the group. Maybe he had lost the game of rock, paper, scissors, or he was the one who volunteered to go get the food. Remember those days of the pandemic where we had the, the, the designated shoppers for the family? Maybe Thomas was the designated shopper and he was out getting food for everybody else. You know, he's at the grocery store and, and missed it. Or maybe because we talk about Thomas being one who is doubting Thomas and he likes to have proof for things. Maybe he was down at the tomb and he'd set up a little cr uh, crime scene trying to find forensic evidence of what happened to Jesus' body. Or maybe it was that Thomas was out trying to live his faith. I think if we read the rest of God John's gospel, we start to see that Thomas maybe is not one who is is as easily afraid as the other disciples. 
So in that story where Jesus finds out Lazarus has died, his friend Lazarus has died, he wants to go to that place where Lazarus is, but the other disciples voice their objection and they say, but, but Jesus, we just came from that place and the authorities were trying to kill you and yet you want to go back there. But Thomas says to Jesus and to the other disciples, let's go where Lazarus is. Let's go to that place of death. Let's go to that place where Mary and Martha are weeping and mourning. Thomas doesn't seem to be quite as afraid as everybody else is. And then a, a little later on, a couple chapters after this, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure from the world, getting ready to go back to God. And, and Jesus says, you, you know how to find me. You know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas says, we don't know where you're going, Jesus. How are we supposed to know the way? And Jesus says to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So maybe Thomas had left the house and gotten busy with that messy work of discipleship, trying to find the way, showing love to those that nobody loves, seeking justice and peace in the world. Maybe he was getting back to work. Or maybe it was that Thomas just needed space to process the loss, to experience the grief of what he had just gone through. I think with simple caricatures like doubting Thomas, we miss the fact that Thomas and all these other disciples were real people who had experienced real things. That Thomas, just like the other disciples, had followed Jesus, had put all of his eggs in the Jesus is Messiah basket, left everything behind to follow him, really believed in Jesus. And then, of course, the events of Holy Week happen. The unimaginable happens. Jesus is arrested and tried by some kangaroo court. There's this miscarriage of justice that takes place. And then Thomas witnesses Jesus crucified, executed, lynched in a lot of ways. How traumatic of an event must that have been? What a, what a scar it must have left on not only Thomas, but these other disciples. And I, and I love the story of Easter. I love the ways that it reminds us that love and justice and peace are the things that win in the end, that, that Good Friday is not the end of the story. But I also think that there should be a warning label to it, that sometimes I think we come to Easter and we expect that because Jesus has been raised from the dead, it cancels out everything that happened beforehand. And somehow it makes everything all better. We should notice that even Jesus, as he shows up, risen from the dead, still has the marks in his hands and his side. And this is, to me, one of the most theologically profound ideas, that Jesus, even as he goes back to God, still has that wounded humanity, that that wounded humanity now lives with God. If Jesus is wounded, you have to imagine the disciples also are wounded, are experiencing their own process of grief and loss and having to navigate their way through it. And grief is an incredibly complex process it's with a variety of emotions. Um, some of you, probably most of you know about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief that I can never remember the right order to. Um, but it sort of, it gives you this idea that you move through these five stages in sort of a linear fashion, that you're, you're kind of taking step at a time and then you're kind of over the process of grief. And it creates, it creates a, a false binary there. But what we know in our own lives is that grief is never a linear process. 
something that winds and twists its way through our lives, that it, in one moment, one moment we feel fine, and the next moment it feels like that, that loss just happened all over again. I remember in the last congregation I served, there was a, a couple that I got to know who were uh, sort of pillars of the community. Uh, they had been married for 73 years. Um, imagine that, 73 years with one person. Um, they've been married for... I didn't mean to sound quite like that, but yes. Um, <laughs> they've been married for 73 years, and I only ever knew them uh, when they were living together in an assisted living facility, um, uh, Stan and Doris. And, and Doris, by the time I got to know her, she was in advanced stages of dementia, so she didn't really speak. And um, to, to visit with them, though, was to see the ways that Stan showed his love for Doris, all of the ways that he like gave of himself to her, um, he would tell me about at breakfast time that if his glass of orange juice had more juice in it than hers, he would switch the cups. Yeah, he, I mean, he gave, he loved her more than, any, than anyone I've ever seen. Um, and so she uh, passed away uh, within my first year of being there, and um, we had the funeral and everything else. And so I had to I, I would go in and visit with him and help him to walk through this experience of losing this lifelong partner who was really more than just a spouse, but a friend and a, a true partner in life. And, and when I go and see him, I would, I would ask him how he's doing and say, well, I, I'm okay. I think I'm almost there. I think I'm almost over it. And I said, Stan, it doesn't have to be like that. It's not a process where you're, you're suddenly done with it, but it's one that you're walking through, that you're going to experience a lot of different things along the way. And, and he certainly did experience a lot of different things along the way. You know, laughter sometimes, talking about his stories of Doris or... Um, Sometimes it was tears shed because he was sad that she was gone, or a lot of times it was just this experience of gratitude, the, the, the time that they got to spend together. Uh, grief is never linear, but it winds and it twists and it moves its way through our lives in all sorts of different ways. Um, we experience grief in a lot of ways. I, I remember uh, when my uh, maternal grandmother, uh, when my grandpa, my maternal grandpa died, my maternal grandmother, she um, had a really hard time with that. I was only in high school then, and um, and I really wanted her just to get better. I wanted her just to be grandma like she'd always been, but I think for her, it was a loss that was with her the rest of her life. She never really fully recovered from it, and and because I was younger then, I, I didn't know any better, but now I think I would leave more space for her to continue to experience that. And the way that she grieved often was to go out to my grandpa's graveside my grandpa had flowers all over his garden. He had flower boxes everywhere, which made cutting his grass when he got older really annoying. Um, but she would go and she would plant flowers for him. That was her way of grieving, of remembering him. I think sometimes grief can be expressed as, as anger. Uh, there was a, a, a husband in a, the church I was a part of right after I graduated from college. Uh, he was in his 40s, and he died unexpectedly. He didn't take very good care of himself, didn't go to the doctor, no matter how much his family begged him to, and so he died unexpectedly. And his family was royally ticked off at him for not taking care of himself and leaving them behind. And so at his funeral, they played his least favorite hymn as a way of getting back at him. Expression of their grief. And Heather told me, my wife told me, that if I die too young, she's going to do the same thing to me. And Diane knows which is my least favorite hymn. So... Um, <laughs> We have all of these ways of expressing our grief. And uh, I remember when my uh, paternal grandpa died, uh, my uncle at the funeral, when he gave one of the remembrances, said that my grandpa's highest obligation in his life was to love my grandma. They were married for 70 years, too. Um, 
And so the way that I expressed my grief, the way I went through that journey was trying to be the best husband that I could be, living up to the example that he had set for me. All of these ways that we have in our lives of expressing grief, of experiencing and moving through the loss that we've gone through. And I think that Thomas is someone who is experiencing that as well. You know, maybe he had left the house and he had gone down to Golgotha, the place where Jesus was crucified, just angry at Jesus for deciding to go to Jerusalem despite the fact that he knew what was going to happen. Maybe he was just angry at the system that took Jesus' life. Or maybe he was out there trying to live up to that example that Jesus had set, loving those that nobody loves, searching for justice and peace in the world, all of these, these ways of experiencing grief. I think we need to start to think of Thomas a little bit differently, not doubting Thomas. There's a reason I think he has his doubts. He's gone through this difficult experience. Um, a few years ago, I came across a painting by Lauren Wright Pittman called Grieving Thomas. Um, and this to me is one of the most profound depictions of Thomas that I have ever uh, found. Um, we see Thomas here with one eye closed, trying to navigate his way through this experience of loss. Um, and so Lauren Wright Pittman, writing about her painting, uh, she, says, she says this. She says, When the unimaginable happens, we can find ourselves drowning in doubt. We flail, reaching for something to bolster our faith in a sovereign living God. Reeling in grief, Thomas needs a buoy to keep himself afloat. And so Thomas, for me, has become not a symbol of someone who doubts, not the symbol of the skeptic, but the symbol of one who grieves, the symbol of one who has gone through this unimaginable loss and is trying to find his way forward. And so the question for me when I come to this story now is not uh, how do we have faith when there's so much reason for us to doubt? The question for me is who is the buoy for Thomas? Who is the one who keeps him afloat as he goes through this experience? And I think, in a lot of ways, that is the work of the community. That perhaps it helps me to see the disciples in a little bit of a different light here in this moment. The disciples are still in that house, maybe not hiding in fear, but maybe holding space for Thomas, giving him the space that he needs to walk through this experience. It is a beautiful thing for me in this story that a whole week passes, that it's not like Jesus shows up right away when and Thomas says, well, unless I see, I won't believe. And Jesus goes, poof, I'm here, Thomas. I think if, even if Jesus had shown up for Thomas on Easter evening, I'm not sure Thomas would have been able to believe it. Thomas cannot see resurrection right now. He needs space to navigate his way through his loss, and we cannot short-circuit that practice or that time. But of course, Jesus does come back for Thomas. A week later, Jesus shows up, and as Thomas's eyes begin to open, he sees the risen and living Jesus standing there in front of him, helping him, buoying him up, letting him know that Good Friday is not the end, grief is not the end, loss is not the end, but a new future stands in front of him. That is the work, I think, of Easter, to be a sort of community that is the buoy, that helps keep afloat those who are experiencing grief, whether it be personal losses or whether it be the grief over the situations in the world around us, whether they are, are find themselves stuck in despair. 
The work of Easter is to be the ones who can see resurrection right now for those who can't see it, who cannot believe it. We hold on to resurrection. We hold on to hope until that moment where the risen and living Christ comes back for all of those who are stuck in grief, stuck in despair, until their eyes can fully open and see that the risen and living one is standing right there in front of him. Thanks be to God. Amen.